This is CTM the Podcast, or Conversations That Matter, which is an online program from the McKinney Center, a community arts center that operates under the town of Jonesboro in Jonesboro, Tennessee. We're partially sponsored by the Hope in Action Grant from the East Tennessee Foundation. The McKinney Center is located in the Booker T. Washington School, which was the black grade school from 1940 until integration. We record in the Gillespie Building in Jonesboro, which is named for Elmer Gillespie, an alumnus of the Booker T. Washington School. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. And this program is to help us learn about people in our community and hopefully humanize one another. I'm Skye McFarland. Michelle Treese. And I'm Brittany Butler. All right, so... Today, we're looking back at an episode from August 2021, basically a whole year from (laughs) right now, Um, but um, we got to talk to Ed Wolf, who had been a guest before, but he's a good good one to have on. He's got a lot to say, Um, and Tiffany Sapp, so I'll let Michelle and Brittany tell you a little bit more about those folks. So I'll tell you about uh, Reverend Tiffany Snap grew up in the mobile life of an Air Force brat and got to experience a variety of American culture and religious identities, but often returned to the Tri-Cities during the summers to visit her grandparents' farm in Hidden Valley. While attending college at nearby Carson Newman College and then seminary at Duke Divinity School, Reverend Tiffany had a sense that she wanted to be a minister. In 2018, she came to... Holston Valley Unitarian Universalist Church as an intern minister and rediscovered her love for this area and its people. After completion of this internship, she went on to serve in in a rigorous clinical pastoral education residency at Johnson City Medical Center. Reverend Tiffany lives in Gray, Tennessee, along with her tugboat captain husband, (laughs) their artsy middle school daughter, a corgi, a calico cat, and a ball python. When she's not planning religious services or doing pastoral care visits, Reverend Tiffany enjoys cooking, hiking, and painting. And Ed Wolf is a retired ordained minister living in Jonesboro for 17 years. In the past, he has been active in lifting awareness of climate change and the need for all citizens to have adequate medical benefits. Presently, he hosts Black White Dialogue and is treasurer of the Johnson City, Washington County, NAACP, with the struggle to develop an equity and inclusion advisory board in the area. He is working with a small group to develop grassroots support through processes of bringing individuals of different perspectives together to understand the need for community unity. This was a great one. What did y'all think? I really like this one. I really like this one. Again, they have so much to say. And I am not a religious person. I'm spiritual. But I learned so much about this uh, social religion and this, uh, they called it uh, liberation theology. That is completely new to me. Um, But I appreciate hearing that from those guys. And I'm incredibly biased, so I'm a member <laughs> of Holston Valley, H-U-U-C, H-U-U-C. Um, and so I remember when Reverend Tiffany came to our congregation as an intern, 
um, and just all the excitement and things she brought to the church. And so now she is our settled minister. And so she's our full-time minister out there. And Well, and it's a year later. And when she was a guest back a year ago, Mm -hmm. she had been there 12 days, (laughs) she said. That's right. She said she was brand spanking new. So if we do have her back, that would be interesting to get some perspective on how it's been. She's done a lot of things. Um, One of her focuses, I know, was to get out into the community. And so at the time of this recording, we just had Tri-Pride up in Bristol. And so she was out there wearing her collar. And so that was a really big deal to represent up there. So, yeah, really interesting. And we love Ed. Ed 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 is Ed. It kind of made me think about um, who Ed is because there was a lot of discussion about um, suffering and how, um, like, some people who have a lot of power um, in the world probably do need to do a little more suffering while there's marginalized people who probably don't need to do as much suffering Mm -hmm. if you're really looking at equity Um, and Ed was talking about action for people to take and he was kind of advising Tiffany Mm -hmm. and saying, be uncomfortable. Um, and Ed is one of those people who has a voice and speaks up and it's not usually something everyone around here agrees with. Um, and you know, I respect that. I think Mm -hmm. that's really, uh, the emphasis behind, you know, what he is doing out there. He's, you know, everyone's kind of like, oh, it's Ed, you know, what to expect from this guy. But um, good for him. Mm -hmm. He's kind of trying to bring that uncomfortableness up. So I I really liked thinking about that while I was listening to this one. I liked how um, he made the comment that uh, if minorities, especially black folks, have suffered for, you know, 400 years, that why can't, you know, the the white majority, but we had questions about that, um, suffer for an hour in a conversation, just feel that little mm. pain for an hour when you have minorities that have, have felt that pain for, you know, centuries. Uh, I thought that was a a great way to look at that. And I think part of that, I think uh, you may have mentioned it, uh, Brittany, about the, there's a new phrase for not people of color. Right, the um, global global majority. Yeah. So instead of saying that you belong to a minority group, it's you're actually part of the global majority. I think that's a very American view to just mm-hmm. like assume that white people are the most, well, and it's a European and Western idea. Sure. Like, well, yeah. white people are all the people I know. So, well, but, and, and that was a conversation that came up in one of our other episodes about when the word white came to be mm-hmm. and why. And that's really interesting. Yeah, you look back at that because Ed actually hosted a black-white dialogue on the origin mm-hmm. of that when that came out. And I think he mentioned that the last census said that the the white population is no longer the majority in America. Right. Which, you know, he even said, might be hard to hear it. That might be an ouchie. (laughs) 
But uh, I thought that was pretty interesting and a different way to look at look at things. Yeah. Great. A great conversation here. Again, that the discussion about uh, uh, the Bible says that that Christians should be more socially uh, responsible and, you know, be more in line with social justice uh, than exactly what I see today. Uh, I thought that was very interesting. I don't know if a lot of our churches and and folks who are Christian see and understand and live that way. I question that. Definitely. Yeah, that sounds a good lesson. It is. It is. Um, and something I wanted to bring up before we go was uh, earlier when we were talking off mic, uh, Michelle, you mentioned uh, that there was a discussion about progress. Mm-hmm. Um, because Ed's been here for a while. He's done mm-hmm. black and white dialogue for a long time. Um, and I thought what he said was really encouraging right. in his response about if there was progress. Yeah. He uh, did he, he did a list of several things that he's seen change uh, just in the last few years. And I think that I'd never looked at it, and I, and I recognize his comments. And, and I think that's a good thing that we should, you know, definitely acknowledge Things have changed. They have improved. Right. It's easy to despair. Yes. <laughs> and I'm. I will be the queen of the one to say I want to see some action now, now, now. But just like it said, this is not going to change in one day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah. So definitely listen. Um, you'll enjoy it. And uh, here you go. I. I'm Sky McFarlane. I work for the McKinney Center, and um, I'm happy to be here this evening with Michelle Treese and Brittany Butler. They will be moderating the conversation. Um, Real quick, just to give you some perspective of where we are, we're not actually in the McKinney Center building um, this evening. We're in the Elmer Gillespie building. Um, which if you live in Jonesboro, you might know is where the food pantry is. Um, But the McKinney Center also is lucky to have a little studio in the building as well. Um, And Elmer Gillespie was and still is pivotal in the food pantry um, here in Jonesboro. But he was also a student at the Booker T. Washington School, which is the McKinney Center today. Um, so we're happy to be here. And one more quick other comment. I want to give a big, big thank you to Nancy Cavanaugh for giving us a new chair. Um, and you'll see it this evening featured. So thank you so much to Nancy um, for donating that to us and helping us uh, keep things pretty and comfortable over here. So I'm going to go ahead and pass it on over to Michelle and Brittany, and I hope you enjoy. And please do use that chat to um, be a part of the conversation with us this evening. I bet you guys can hear us now. Sorry about that. I'm Michelle. And I'm Brittany. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Usually we run a little bit long, so we're going to introduce these folks. We have Ed Wolf and Tiffany, I forgot your last name. Stop. Tiffany Stop. And so they are going to give you just a quick bio about who they are, what they do, their passion, and then we'll get into our conversation. So how about Tiffany, you go first. Hi, everyone. I'm Tiffany Sapp. I am 
the minister of Holston Valley Unitarian Universalist Church here in Gray, Tennessee. It is my 12th day as their minister. So I am just about as new as I can be. Um, I've been in tri the Tri-Cities for the last three years now, but I have family connections. Um, my dad grew up in Kingsport. My grandfather and my uncle worked at Eastman. So it's good to be back home in East Tennessee. Great. So you're pretty new. We'll have a bunch of questions about that. Be gentle. <laughs> <laughs> so how about you, Ed? I think a lot of us know you, but uh, you've been on our show before. Tell us a little about yourself. I was thinking about that, and uh, just yesterday I was, we were in a meditation circle, and it dawned on me that I am a white, heterosexual male with a mainline Christian church, and raised in a um, middle-class family and come from a Germanic Scandinavian background. And I'm trying to unpack all that and get rid of a lot what has been pumped into me without me even knowing it. Mm. True. I think a lot of people are hopefully on that same journey. Yeah. Michelle, if you don't mind, I just had a question pop into my head. So I'm wondering, what does equality mean to you both? Or how would you define equality? And Tiffany, we just, I'll give you a minute so we can start with you. <laughs> okay. Hmm. That's, that's one of those big words, right? Um, when I think about, um, I like the word equity better. So for me, like equality might be that regardless of our needs and circumstances, we show up to a place and we're all given the same thing. Where equity would be that we consider what people actually need from the circumstances that they're coming from. And that equity would be then supporting people where they're at. I, I don't know if you've seen the meme about like, you've got three people of different heights trying to look over a fence to see a game, you know, and it's like, you need to give the shorter person the taller box. Mm -hmm. And so I, I like to think about equity and in context of the tremendous amount of privilege that I experience and that and just really clearly highlighted it's like equality is just going to keep working to my benefit you know where equity might be more like how can how can we even the playing field a little better I like thank you I like the term equity too and uh, unfortunately because I am white middle class and all those other things uh, I benefit from it being non-equitable and uh, give you an example uh, my stepson just got a job with a big corporation 
his parents happened to know a couple of vice presidents in that corporation. And one of them slipped his resume, didn't say much, but just said, take a look at this guy. And the first thing I thought of, what about people in the black community? That's why I'm working and it's only a drop in the bucket is with black white dialogue because if black people get to know white people and white people get to know black people, maybe there'll be a little more equity. Mm. Because, you know, I've, I've heard of cases where job openings occur. Mm-hmm. And maybe I can be the person who speaks for the black person. That's that's really interesting because if you think about how many opportunities come from networking, and then if folks are staying in their own little silos, then you might not have a racist intention or policy on the book, but it's still going to benefit the people that it has always benefited, which is the people who look like us. And uh, I'll make a comment. I was talking to the president of the Chamber of Commerce. And uh, he is going to be speaking on Black-White Dialogue, little plug, (laughs) in September on its Minority Business Entrepreneur Week. And he said, there are businesses in this area that are waking up because Eastman just commented that they had a batch of interns, many of them black. And they all, I don't know all of them, but most of them said, we're not coming here. Hmm. Too white. Hmm. There's not enough diversity. And diversity builds equity. Hmm. Do you recall the first time you knew that you benefited from uh, equality versus equity? Mm. You, for both of you, when you think of that. And it kind of, I kind of, when I hear you say that, it makes me think of affinity bias. When you, you hang out with people that are like you, that may be white and in business or maybe white and in religion. and. And so when it comes to spaces that are open for anyone, oh, I know you, you're in my circle, come in. Can you think of a time that now that you look back, you realize mm. I've been Well, I, I, can, I can tell a story that's about uh, something that happened in a different town with people that y'all wouldn't know anything about. (laughs) Well, I, well, uh, you know, I, uh, I was doing what all young people do looking for a job. I was not looking to be a minister at the time. And, and, and I landed a job and it was great. And I didn't think nothing of it, except that I must've been the best, most qualified candidate for the job. I, um, I did that job well, I got promoted and I soon became the. Okay, sorry about that folks, we should be back. We'll give everyone a second or two to come back.
okay, and I believe technically you were speaking. I was. I, I don't know how much of the story you heard, but I tend to be long-winded anyway. So maybe that's an opportunity to, to tighten it up a little bit. Uh, but the, the whole point is I got this job. It was a great job. I then became the person who was going through resumes and looking to hire people. And I had done my top picks. I'd gone to my supervisor and said, this is my top pick. And he read the name at the top of the resume. And it was not a typical white person name. And he said, do you think this person's black? Yeah. And I just looked at him and I'm like, I don't know but they're the person I want to interview. And it was shocking to me because this is a person that I really loved and really loved working with. And he was an older gentleman and maybe he didn't mean anything malicious by it, but he still asked the question. And that was very eye-opening to me. I realized that, um, when he got a resume from me with a white person's name, that that may have affected the fact that I got hired. Um, so uh, that was that was a little bit of a shock for me. It, it wouldn't be now because I've learned a few things, but it was a shock for me back then. Wow. How about you, Ed? Well, I think I mentioned the last time, uh, I was raised and worked in a white world. I did not really talk or converse with a black person until I was 30. I went to, uh, I was living in a town, Naperville, that did not, Illinois, that did not allow black people in after six o'clock. And I never thought a thing about it. I went to a school that had one black in it that I saw from a distance. And I hired into a public accounting firm that was all white and all male. And then I went into banking and it was all white. So it, it, I started to be aware at that time, it was in Cincinnati, Ohio, when they formed Project Commitment because of the race riots uh, that occurred a few couple of years before and met and had for dinner a black couple. So, and you may have but I have no, you know, I could never think about a time where I was picked because I was white or someone else was not picked because they were black. Well, and I, I think part of the, dynamic of this is that we're typically not aware of these yes, things exactly. we are blissfully ignorant exactly uh, or or then not blissfully ignorant but it's like the system is designed to benefit us we're not sure what's going on folks but just bear with us yeah we keep coming back comes back pretty yeah. quick so all right I, I was, I think I was about to like, just <laughs> rally. rally, but, but I, I think, I think that's all right. I think we can move on. So Ed mentioned that first time he met, he actually saw a black person was when he was 30. How about you? When did you realize you were white? <laughs> or 30 yet? 
what did you, what is the first time you had an experience with a black person? Yeah, yeah. Well, they're, they're definitely connected for me. So um, I'm, I might be a little younger than Ed. So <laughs> I, I am coming from a, a little bit of a different world. And um, sorry. Uh, so I grew up in the military and we lived a lot of different places. And we were stationed in a, a very diverse suburb in Maryland when I was in like four years old, five years old, six years old. And there were a, a variety of kids and skin colors on this little cul-de-sac that we lived in. And there was uh, right across the street from me, there was a girl named Lakeisha. And right next to her was a boy named LD and they were both black and they were the kids that were my age. So I played with them all the time. And that first summer I moved there, it was like, we were buds. Um, and then kindergarten started. And when we got on that bus and started going to that school, something changed in our dynamic and it, I think it was an awareness of different skin color going on. And the older kids were kind of modeling maybe a little more separateness or uneasiness. And uh, it confused the heck out of me. Um, and I bet it confused the heck out of them too. Um, it didn't like end our friendship, but I do think that the dynamic changed a little bit at that point. So that's the first time I really remember being aware. Um, I mean, we're talking five years old, so it's like way back in my memory. So a, a lot of my, um, growing up experiences have, have had people of color in them. But it is worth saying that it was generally uh, people of color who were used to fitting into a white person's world. Um, and I do think that does make it a little different. I wasn't the one having to go outside of my comfort zone. They were the ones having to go outside of their comfort zone. And so what seemed like not a big deal to me may have been a big deal to them. Um, I don't know what sort of conversations had to happen at their homes. Um, I uh, have a adult friend who is Black now, and we have talked about the conversations that she had in her family growing up as a Black kid going to a school that was mostly white and kind of what that was like for her. And it made me realize, again, I was just completely unaware of all this extra work and energy and thought and conversation that had to happen being a black person in a white world, basically. So I'm just- not strong enough. Um, guys, our internet is a little bit unstable, so we're going to try to reset the router real quick. So hang on, and we will be back in a minute. Maybe two. Maybe two. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> One minute and 50 seconds. We'll be back. <laughs> so I think the question I was going to ask you was, when you were in high school, and this is for both of you, when you were in high school and you were able to make friends and interact with them, do you recall a situation in high school where you realized my world is different from your world with someone of color, with another person, I should say? Hmm. So my high school experience was really unusual because I was in Montgomery, Alabama, my freshman year, and I was in uh, middle of nowhere, California, my sophomore and junior year. And then I was in Washington, D.C., well, a suburb of Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia, my senior year. So two, three very different samples. And um, I did get sent to a private school the year that we were in Montgomery. And there were two Black students in my grade and there was one Muslim student in my grade and everyone else was very wealthy white people um, and uh, the school dance was at the country club in Montgomery where at the time I was in high school uh, the uh, black people were not allowed at the country club except these black students were allowed for the dance. And I just wanted to go wear a dress and be pretty and uh, maybe dance with a boy. Um, one of the girls I sat with at lunch was black and was really struggling with whether or not to go. One of our other friends who was white was like, I'm not going. It's wrong to even have it there. And I chose to go and I feel bad about it in retrospect. Um, but it was, uh, it was definitely an uncomfortable time. And hopefully that discomfort made me do better in the future. But um, to, to be in the 1990s and there's a country club that's not allowing Black people in, again, was surprising to me. Too much of my story is like, this surprised me and this shocked me. And it's like, really? <laughs> when, when are you going to wake up? So what about you? Well, you made the comment, when did you realize you were white? And it took a long time. Most of the time, all I did is realized you were black. Mm. That is because such a in my, I was in my world. Um, I'm reading the book, and I recommend it to everyone who's listening tonight, called The Sum of Us, S-U-M, by Heather McGee. And there's an a mixed Asian couple who moved to Austin, Texas, and I guess I-35 goes right down the middle and on one side is the black community and the poor and the other side is the wealthy. They moved to the wealthy side because that's where the good school systems were, see? That's the subtlety of it all because the money goes into the good wealthy. 
She, all they were looking at was SAT scores and tests and getting your kid into college. She got tired of it. And she moved her kids to the other side where there was diversity. Mm. And in that school, they talked about community mm. and helping one another, which I found is just incredible. Talking about the need for diversity, which we don't have here. Mm. So that all works toward that. Um, the one thing I did realize was uh, in Project Commitment, I had this black couple over, my wife and I had the black couple over for dinner. It's been so long ago, that was 1968. And uh, they ne we never got invited back to their house, which was supposed to. And I talked to the employee in the bank and he said, Ed, if his neighbors saw you coming into his house at that time, he would be called an Uncle Tom. Mm. So there was some of that that went, and he said, you have to realize that. And this guy was a great guy. He dresses like a, the white community when he goes to work. He gets home, he dresses like the black community. I put that out of my mind, but I haven't forgotten it. And what a way to have to live. And I've talked to enough people who say it still goes on today. I get up in the morning, I have to ask myself, how do I dress? How do I do this? How do I do that in order to satisfy the white community? Where am I going today? Mm -hmm. I beg your pardon? I asked that question. Where am I going today? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And see, I don't do that. Yeah, and you've alluded to that a little bit, but it's like code switching. And I think there's a podcast sure. called that too. And so you mentioned you can wake up and just be, whereas other folks, people of color, have to wake up and say, how am I going to exist in this world? And I think that's a big part of the mental energy that a lot of marginalized folks have to No question spend about it. No question. They wake up, you know. I think there's a whole, uh, for me, there's a different dialect. There are different phrases and words. There's a different tone in my voice, um, depending on who I'm with, you know? And so, and, and it's, you know, I, again, I'm speaking for myself. When you do it for so long, you just, you just figure it out, right on your hand. You just, you just do it. But for white folks, it's, it's important, I think, to know that every minority is probably doing this, something on that level. Mm -hmm. every and I would also say the female. That's a, that would be even in a male in a male world. Yes, yes, and actions go along with that behaviors. Uh, and, and it's it's figuring out the code and knowing when to switch up to make it work. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. All right. So earlier when, before the show, you guys were talking about, and you don't have to name the school or anything because I'm going to get deep into that. But you mentioned that there may have been a school that you guys went to related to uh, study religion. So at those schools, I don't know, I can't remember the name, I think. Uh, don't care. <laughs> Did you have opportunity to interact with black folks or minorities who are also studying religion at that school and how was that how was their approach to religion edu religious education well a little bit different than your approach that you noticed 
I, um, I went to a Lutheran Theological Southern Seminary and they had some other professors from different denominations and there was a black group that they were separated from us. So there, there wasn't a lot of dialogue going on. The only thing I did know is there were some of us who went to a Lutheran center is what they called in Atlanta. And they went to the Presbyterian seminary, the Methodist seminary and the black seminary. Mm -hmm. And when a couple of my talk to went there, came back with a whole different vision of what was going on. And uh, I can never think of the term, but it's the uh, theology of... Uh, like liberation theology? Liberation theology. Yeah. It was just starting to really get into it at that point when I was in seminary in the early 90s or mid 90s. And, but I never, see, well, we were talking uh, before uh, about certain things and, and I, I had mentioned about uh, being in the, in the prison system with the black people. But I didn't do anything because my goal was to be called to a church. Although I, I led a black Lutheran church for two years. Karma is at work. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and when you get into a church, you want to earn a living. You want medical benefits, you want a pension. And when you get up in the pulpit and look out there, those are the people that give it to you. And that is a dynamic that I think from Christianity and maybe other, you know, I only know Christianity has really affected us negatively because what's going on in this country today, not just racism, but COVID and climate. We don't hear enough coming out of the churches. Yeah. We've got to, we've got to be careful. Yeah. And so which is so ironic because it was in seminary where I was introduced to the idea that, you know, maybe it should be about more than just like this other world, but ideas like liberation theology or the social gospel that came before that, yeah. that, that our faith means nothing if it's not positively making a difference here. Well, I've been ordained 25 years now, so some of that may have changed, but, you know, well, I hear it and I still hear it in the pulpit. Well, sure. And, and, but what's ironic is I went to a, a mainstream Protestant seminary where they were teaching that, but they were still existing in powers of structure that, that um, were still creating oppression. And that's something that I've noticed everywhere I've gone is, is even places that are trying 
really hard to teach better still are dwelling in these structures that have that unfair uh, bias that we've been talking about. Uh, the first class I ever took that was focused on the Black experience specifically was in seminary, and it was the Black church in America. And But they didn't start with just about Black church, but just the experience of being Black, the assumption that white is normal and and that um you know kind of laying that foundation for all of us and many of us were were privileged upper middle class white folks who'd gone straight from high school to college to seminary because we wanted to be ministers when we grew up and uh it was really life-giving for me uh to encounter ideas about about liberation theology ideas that 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 the work of the sacred is to set all of us free um and then i think for me that really started to dovetail into theologies of interconnectedness which really support what you were just saying about the environment and and really all of it everything is connected yeah but uh, uh, see, I have been told personally that I'm too radical to be preaching. And do you think that stems from like people pleasing, but just the ones at the top with the funds to support institutions like this and one of, the, one of the challenges, I think, in the Christian churches is that many people come to worship on Sunday, and it's one hour out of seven days, and they want to feel secure, mm. and they want to feel safe. And, of course, I had a person tell me that once, and I said, I read scripture, and I never heard Jesus say that. Hmm. but that's what we want to feel and that's not what it's all about uh, in my estimation we're to struggle we're to question we're to look inside ourselves and find out who we are before we can help people other people uh, one other thing I want to mention about this too with the black experience and this is what's helped me because I've gotten to know some black people who now, I had one of the greatest honors of my life. Black person said, you are the first white person I trust. That's, That's big. Yeah. We were chatting one day and I was kidding about the length of a black service, the length of the black preaching. And we got into it. And when I had to preach in the prison where there was many black people, I began to understand because when I got preaching, then all of a sudden I hear, keep it going. Keep it going, Pastor. Keep it going. And I'll bring it in. Bring, and it just energizes you. And then he went a little deeper and he said, you understand when the black person goes to worship to church on Sunday morning, it's the one place 
where the black person can share joy and feel liberated mm -hmm. and be himself or herself. He said, but if you see black people who don't worship on Friday nights, they're getting drunk because they have no way to deal with what they had to do the whole week. When they come in to worship, they can get rid of some of that. Mm. Now that's heavy. Mm -hmm. I don't think all black people are falling into this too, but I-, I Well, of course <laughs> not, of course not. But, but there's a difference. And I've also said to people, and I, I'm glad you mentioned that, it's not all people. The white people go to church and worship here in their mind. Black people worship with their hearts. And I am now visiting black churches. Nice. And I'm trying to tolerate long service. Because <laughs> when I was in seminary, I was told, don't make any sermon longer than eight minutes because that's how long it is before the next commercial comes on TV. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a whole different world. So you guys mentioned the... Uh liberation theology. I, I've never heard that, and I don't know mm -hmm. if those out there have, but I'm not a minister either. So can you give me just a little bit about what that entails? Well, it's it's been a while since I've been <laughs> at school, um, but what what sticks with me about liberation theology, and and I'm a Unitarian Universalist, so we don't always use the word God, but to make this easier, I'm going to use the word God tonight. Um, but yeah. Right? <laughs> you could use divine yeah well but 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 this is the way it was handed to me at my protestant seminary so this is how i'm gonna say it tonight is that um that god identifies with the marginalized more than god identifies with the powerful oppressors you know we have these really grandiose ideas of god being this this dude on a throne and you know you ask a little kid a he might look kind of like ed you know uh, and so so liberation theology in their declaration that um that God has come to, to release the captives and to bring freedom to the oppressed is also, you know, God's more likely to look like a black woman. Uh, maybe, maybe God's more likely to be queer. Maybe God's more likely to have a physical disability. Excuse me, a physical disability. It's kind of an intentional turning the assumptions of the powerful upside down and saying, um, if you're the powerful, if you're the oppressor, then the only way you're going to find God is to let go of your power and to stop oppressing, basically. Um, so uh, it's, it had its origins uh, in South America with um, a Catholic South American theologians. Wasn't it Romero? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, I don't know if I got an A on that essay, <laughs> but that's that's my best. That's my best try. Let me give you a 
two-minute sermon. <laughs> In the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus starts out on his ministry, the first thing he says, God's time is here. The culture, not we use kingdom, but we don't know what a kingdom is because we're culture of God is awry, is drawing near. Change your way of thinking. That's what repent means. It means think 180 degrees different than how you think. And that was Jesus' total ministry. Hmm. And part of it was what they call, the Greek word is kenosis, which is empty yourself. And if you believe Christ, Jesus is God, God was on that cross. And guess what happened? He got new life. And so my perception is the story of Jesus and the story from the Gospels is that you empty yourself and you'll suffer and you'll hurt and people will not like you and they will ignore you and do all kinds of things against you, but you'll have new life and really be free. And that's what liberation is about. Mm. That I'm like, preach it. That's, that's really good. There, there's one thing though, that you said about suffering that, that I think is really interesting in, in these sorts of dialogues, because, um, historically uh, a theology that has lifted up suffering as a virtue has actually been used to keep women and people of color in their place so it's I've I've been struggling on this a little bit and am not sure how to really put it into words but it seems to me that like some of us do need to kind of embrace the suffering, the discomfort, and the challenge. And it's those of us who have really enjoyed a lot of power, like you and me. And, and then there are other people who I think suffering is not the virtue for them. Suffering's too much of their reality already. And, mm-hmm. and so that's when claiming that liberation, that joy, that freedom uh, that you've seen so many times in the Black church that, that that's when that really comes into play. But, but for them, the suffering is often a reality. Well, let me offer a difference. We all suffer externally. I don't think the divine wants that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Suffering comes internally when you have to say such things as, I was wrong. Mm. I have to look at life differently. I need to be forgiven. Those kind of things. That's that's where you suffer inside. Yes. And that that plays off very well what you were saying yes. about Jesus and the change. And what part of what I want to chat with you afterwards is in all of what's happening, especially since George Floyd, is the white folks are getting all aboard and they're getting all excited. And they're demonstrating and everything else. It's like 9-11 when everyone put flags on their cars and everything for about a month or two. But then it dawns on them. 
if they really want equity and equality as a white person, I've got to suffer. Mm. I've got to change the way I live. And all of a sudden, it backs off very subtly. And that's, I think, as Daryl Carter said Monday night on Black White Dialogue, we've got to change souls mm. one at a time. And that's, that's the challenge. And it's difficult. Mm. I agree with that. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I think people get tired of the suffering. They get tired of, again, having to change. And then I think, you know, they lose that speed. I think they lose that energy. Let me mention one thing. And, and I was in a conversation some while ago. We have a blue stripe down Boone Street. And it was just to honor the police. To so happen, it was one year after Black Lives Matter started getting popular. Hmm. I made the comment, you know what we could do on Jonesboro days or when the festival is here, demonstrate down Boone Street to take that blue line off. And the comment I got back was, that would hurt business. Yeah, it would. <laughs> How willing are you to be equitable? Because that's what it takes. Martin Luther King knew that. And the only way he could hit people was economically. Mm -hmm. And so everybody had to suffer to make some changes, but the, the heart, the soul did not get changed. Mm. Well, and, and that is when you see people waver, yeah. is, is when it's like actually affecting their pocketbook. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, we're, we're at a place right now, like you pointed out, that, that we can put up a Black Lives Matter flag and say that we care. Um, but, but, you know, are we going to stay the course if it affects our pocketbooks? Um, that is, that's when it's about soul changing. Well, look at Tiffany, look at what happened with COVID-19. The issue was economy versus people's health. Yes. And, and we see we economy. see what was chosen. Yeah. Yeah. That that was another revelation for me in seminary was uh, taking an ethics class and having economic injustice pointed out to me for the first time and how how connected economic injustice and racism is. Oh. I mean, it, it really, it really goes hand in hand. And my professor uh, back then, she said, you know, and it seems obvious now, but back then it was eye-opening for me, you know, the, the way that the, the rich white people are going to keep their powers by having the poor white people and the poor black people 
fighting with each other. And I mean, it, there is a strong economic aspect to all of this. Well, there's something that just came out today and I'm wondering how it's gonna impact our culture. For the first time in the history of the United States, white people census is lower than it was 10 years ago. Hmm. There are less white people percentage-wise. Don't say that out loud. I just did. <laughs> well, and now the movement is instead of people of color, people of the global majority. Ooh. Yeah. The well, tagline is also, if you really want to make white people mad, refer to people of color as people of the global majority. People of the global majority. I I like it. I, I, for, a while, I, for a while, I was in conversation with a Muslim and I was sharing, I'll never forget it, is we were sharing about how they were treated at the time when oh. it was really scary for them. And he said, Ed, no issue is going to be resolved until the Black issue is resolved. Mm. And until we face that and face this country that was built on slavery and genocide, we will not, we will not get anywhere. And see, that's the suffering we have to do as mm -hmm. a nation. And that, that's really interesting because I think the data proves that. I don't know if anyone has taken the Harvard implicit bias test. Oh, I do. Yeah. And so yeah. they've been tracking that and LGBT bias has decreased in the last 60 years. And so the rate at which it has decreased has been one of the fastest decreases in a population group bias like in history. Wow. And so they ran models for women, for Muslim Americans, for all these different types of populations. And they all are low now or will be lower in the future, except for black people. Yep. It does not, the model does not show bias towards African-Americans diminishing for like 120 years or 200 years. And we're seeing that with the voter and we're seeing so it in other ways. Truth to that, what you just yeah. said. Yeah, absolutely. Now, that's what we, and so people have come up to me and even said, Black White Dialogue, why don't you change it? Why don't we talk about others? And I said, no, we are not going to do it because until we face the Black issue and the racism that's with that, we're not going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. And and of course, people are being reactionary and trying trying to block that everywhere of they course. can. This this whole thing about not teaching critical race theory <laughs> when people don't even know what they mean by that is is so frustrating. Because I have a child that I want to learn. I want her to learn how to think critically about our history. I want her to start understanding and repenting early so that she's not naively surprised 8 million times the way I was. Well, uh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, the thing about that critical race theory, and Michelle, you were on the call 
or on the Zoom call, Daryl Carter, Dr. Carter, must have said, I don't know how many times. The schools are not teaching it. Not even anywhere in the curriculum. They're yeah. only teaching African history. Yeah. It's barely to get that out there. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. We have about six more minutes. So do you guys have any questions for each other? Can you think of something? Well, I would love to take this opportunity to ask you a question because as we just established, I'm about as new as we can get. And, and you clearly have so much experience in, in these areas, in this world transforming work. What advice would you give me or other new folks like me who maybe we, we want to do better, but we kind of don't know where to start? What, what, would you, what advice would you give? Well, I can only speak for myself, and uh, thank God there's not many people like me, <laughs> but uh, I just, I read a book called No Bigotry Allowed, and at the end of the book it said, and I was naive as could be, I look back now and I kind of chuckle, uh, and it said, uh, get outside of your comfort zone and get in deep dialogue with people of color. And so that's how the black-white dialogue started with four men, four women, uh, four blacks, four whites. And they were ranged from 24 to uh, 24 to 84. Uh, and I just picked up the phone. I knew if you don't know anybody, it makes it harder. And we're trying to have with black-white dialogue social events. So two people can talk to each other. Uh, whatever and then that's an opening that if you you get out of your comfort zone you pick up the phone and you say let's go out for a cup of coffee and it builds over time uh i took out i called up i well i first talked to uh joseph sobel and one of the people because he had connections and i said who would you talk to he said ralph davis and bill colton I picked up, he gave me the phone numbers. I picked up the phone, said, I'm Ed Wolf. And I, you know, we're trying to do something. I'd like to talk to you. And they thought I was nuts. <laughs> and they didn't believe me. Well, but I'm Ralph Davis, before he died, started coming regularly to Black White Dialogue. Well, and so, so part of what I gather from that is that, that, you know, my, my dignity is not more important than getting into this work. If I'm going to feel embarrassed, if I'm going to feel awkward, if people are going to think I'm crazy, that that's okay. That's, you know. It's got to be okay with you. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or I'm never going to get anywhere. Uh -huh. You have to be okay with other people thinking, she's crazy. <laughs> And, you know, yeah. Well, this this might this might be a little bit of my suffering, then. <laughs> <laughs> or, or as I think Ralph Davis said, well, that sounds good, Ed. <laughs> Which means I'm going to be watching. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. Uh, and the other, you know, I'll go back to scripture. There's, I think it's in Hebrews 12 which cites all of these old characters in the Bible that never knew how God's will would be ending up. 
And so don't, neither do we. Mm. I'm not going to see the results mm. of what's happening. But I've got to do my part and let it happen. And, you know, it may go backward. Mm. We're not through this crisis that we're in right now. It's got a way to go. And, and there's some scary parts to it. Uh, but we got to do what we got to do. And we can't get, you know, one of the motivations for me, and I understand what you said, uh, Michelle, about when you get up in the morning, who am I going to see? It just becomes part of you. I understand that. But Black people have been doing this for 400 years. And who am I to complain if a year or two, it's a struggle and I even take backward movements? That's not important. What is important is to keep, if you believe in, if you really believe in your heart, not your mind, in your heart, that this nation needs to be culturally equitable and equal and diverse, and then you put your heart to it. And if you don't, you go off on your own. And so, Ed, we had a question in the chat from Susan. Have you seen any progress in this area so far, either coming out of your Black-White dialogue work or? Yes. Yeah. Uh, what did you say? Yeah. I went, I went, well, I don't know if it's progress or just me finding out. I went into the president of the Chamber of Commerce and he's with it. And I found some other people that are with it and understand what's going on and uh and are doing things. And they're getting a little bit bolder. <coughs> I won't mention the name, but I cited the example of a person who wrote a letter. He's getting bolder. And what had to happen was another person challenged him. And in his heart, he knew he had to change. And you just, you know, you just do it and see what happens. Uh, yeah, I think there's been a lot of progress, Brittany. I think a lot of progress. I think what's going on at ETSU is progress. Big progress. And what is that? Three black coaches. The College of Arts and Sciences now has an assistant dean for diversity and equity. It's the biggest college. That's Dr. Carter. And he said, I'm going to make this the model for ETSU. I've had private conversations with Nolan and he gets it. I have been in the position he has been in. Some people know that I managed a symphony orchestra. I had to bend and beg and be very nice to the people who shelled out the big money. Dr. Nolan has to do that or he doesn't have ETSU. And he's also got to get paid. But I think he's doing remarkable work. And it's not satisfying for some people. They want it tomorrow. It's not going to happen tomorrow. But he's working on it. And I keep hearing little tidbits. They now have that uh, lunch and learn the whole month of September. And I'm going to post it on Black White Dialogue. It's all about 
critical race theory and diversity and other things. And they had this thing in September now for equity. Uh, he's working at it. Just take time. Good to know. Good to know. So, and then there's other schools that don't. <laughs> <laughs> but we won't mention no, no, names. No. <laughs> so, <Yeah. coughs> so any, any final comments? Uh, wrap up for you, Tim. I just want to express gratitude to all of you for uh, having me here and getting a chance to kind of think about, I mean, stories from my childhood that I hadn't thought about. There's, there's so much about my life that, that has been unexamined at times. And I think that getting a chance to really think about it with your good questions um, has has been good, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take your advice and uh, and be a little uncomfortable because like like you pointed out, I like have to be uncomfortable for a couple of hours, you know, instead of being uncomfortable for an entire lifetime. So may, maybe I could do that. Great. Yeah, that's great. I think uh, I personally think Black White Dialogue has, has done a lot, even if it gives people an opportunity to do what we're doing here. Uh, I, I like, I'm more of an action person and I want to see things going on, but being able to sit down and just share conversation is, is a. I, Michelle, I, you know, I've had that a lot of comments and criticism about. I don't see anything happening. And, but when you talk to people who are doing things like good friends of ours invited black people to dinner and got to know them and they're now good friends. And there was one person we had as a, uh, as a presenter and the John City School System brought that person in to talk about diversity. We've had Dr. Dolan sit and listen. Uh, so there's just, we want big, you know, that's the American way, big results all the time. It's all those things that are going on behind the scenes. I know one person from Black White Dialogue has a sign in her yard, Black Lives Matter, in a white neighborhood. That took courage. They're little things. That's what we got to do. No. Well, Tiffany, I'd love to have you back because I want to hear more about your the, the Unitarian Church and the beliefs in that because I think that's a little different for Washington County. Just a little bit. I could be wrong. No, we, it's a, <laughs> we it's are a hell of a different. lot of different. <laughs> <laughs> well, well and, I'm, and I'm all about Ed plugging Black-White Dialogue here because it's <laughs> in fitting with what y'all are doing, but I I tried not to come here to plug my church. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Just giving you a heads up. <laughs> oh my God. I think you got lost this, but if you, maybe not too much. I just told Tiffany that I'd love for her to come back and talk a little more about 
the Unitarian Church, because I know that's very different in this area. So uh, we'll try to get more conversation on that side of the thing. So let me go back. I think, oh, no, oh, oh there we go. So normally we have like an event or something for you guys. So yeah, I think I found one yeah. call to action and full disclosure, I do attend HBUC as well. So, but we're not plugging UZ, right? <laughs> uh, but there is a conference sponsored by ETSU, September 20th and 22nd. It's a virtual con conference on equity and inclusion. And this is open to the entire community. So they do encourage folks um, from all over to attend. And you can find registration information on the ETSU website um, if you just search equity. It's about a $50 fee. And I will be sending out on Black White Dialogue the schedule for lunch and learn from the diversity department uh, probably next week. And there are some events coming up uh, this weekend. I think the Kitty Center has an open house. Uh, there's some events coming up either later on this month or in September with Carver with some. Um, uh, That's this Saturday to the oh. Emancipation Celebration. Emancipation Smooth. Celebration at Carver this Saturday as well. So you have yeah. to divide your day up. <laughs> uh, so lots of stuff. And then you save the date also September 11th is the Emoja Festival. Yes. That's right. And we've got. Um, Part two of I'll leave that date on that. Oh, yeah. Part two for uh, usable past. And that August is 26. August 26. At 9 a.m. 9 a.m. And you'll have to go on the McKinney website, the McKinney Center website to register for that event. And it is free and open to everyone. So thank you guys. We apologize for the, the breakups, but uh, I think you got the, the, the most of this conversation. And we will see you next month. So we'd like to give a special thanks to Ed and Tiffany. Uh, we hope you all enjoyed that. And a very special thanks to our listeners out there. You can find more information about conversations that matter on the McKinney Center website at mckinneycenter.com. Just look under programs, conversations that matter. And download this episode and other podcasts by searching CTM The Podcast. And you can listen wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, and if you want to know more about the McKinney Center in general, I would just recommend going to our website, mckinneycenter.com. We've got a lot of stuff going on. We've got art classes, community events, Storytown program where you can come watch a live radio show. There's also the Storytown podcast. So while you're looking up CTM, the podcast, you can look up Storytown and check them out as well. And um, thank you so much, Brittany and Michelle, for hanging out and talking to me about all this stuff again. It's great. Thank you. Yeah. Great. We'll see you all next time. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>